Well, good evening, everybody. It's uh, good to see you. You're all here. Welcome to the LSE. Uh, those of you who haven't been before, special welcome. Uh, I'm Howard Glenister, and I'm uh, Emeritus Professor of Social Policy here at the school. Um, and today marks the publication of this book. Um, the title is on the lecture, The Government Paternalist Nanny State or Helpful Friend, and it's written by Julian Legrand and uh, Bill New, who was here uh, and is now working abroad. But they've been collaborators over a, a long time, haven't you, Julian? Indeed. Um, now, after uh, Julian has expounded his book, uh, the book will be on sale in the lobby outside, and Julian will be happy to sign any books if you increase their value no end, I'm sure. Um, and afterwards, you'll be very welcome to come upstairs to the sixth floor, the Shaw Library, which is always, to me, a kind of uh, place of peace and quiet in the hurly-burly of this, this institution. <laughs> you could escape to, but it's a nice room. So for those of you who don't know it, please do, at the end of the session, when you've bought a book or not, make your way up to the sixth uh, floor. Now, Julian uh, began teaching uh, economics here in the late 1970s. And then in 1985, Tony Atkinson uh, appointed him, along with John Hills a bit later, to be co-directors of the Welfare State Programme, uh, which produced a string of very important new work on economic outcomes of social policy, and on its distributional effects. Uh, the results of that are, are still finding their way into policy in one way or another. So that was an important period. Uh, Julian went on to do other things, uh, went to Bristol, headed the School of Advanced Urban Studies there, and then came back to be Richard Timms professor here. Uh, but it, it occurred to me, just thinking about this, that... Um, got quite an interesting conjunction of authors of recent books. I mean, first of all, we have John Hill's book, Good Times, Bad Times, which is a major attack on the notion that welfare is somehow just for scroungers and the poor. And then, more recently, Tony Atkinson's book on inequality, uh, with, and what do we do about it, with 15 practical measures that we could take to reduce inequality. And now we have the third of that trio producing a book, Julian. Um, and I think uh, if anybody's contemplating how to revise their social and public policy in the light of recent events, that reading list, that trio, is not a bad starting point. Uh, but I'll leave you to judge that when you've heard... Uh, Julian's account of this latest book. Julian. Thank you. Thank you very much, Howard. Um, is this on? Can people hear? Uh, um, yes, and I may say um, um, 
I'd complement those uh, those three books by um, some of the more recent books that Howard has produced, um, which uh, I say are an, also an excellent read, an important contribution to social policy. Um, um, the uh, I, while I'm paying tribute to people, I think I would like to pay a tribute to my co-author Bill New, who um, has helped with the book. Uh, he's, in fact, uh, he had so many of the original ideas in his PhD thesis. <coughs> Well, I'm sorry that he can't be with us today. Um, however, um, the story sort of begins with... Um, can I, let me just check this. Is, yes. The story begins, really, uh, when um, I was lucky enough to be uh, asked to work in 10 Downing Street um, with Tony Blair. Um, uh, I was to advise him on a whole range of areas like choice, choice in uh, healthcare, choice in education... Um, and uh, then, more specifically, on health and health policy. And um, on the second day of my appointment, I got into a blazing row with the Secretary of State for Health, uh, who was somebody called John Reed. some of you will remember. Um, it was not perhaps the, a sensible career move, I think, to do that on your second day. Um, and actually, I didn't last in the job all that long. Uh, but um, uh, the... That, the, the remains of that row essentially have produced this book. And what happened was this. I managed to... Uh, uh, I'd had a long chat with the Prime Minister about the proposal to ban smoking in public places. At that time, which was the early 2000s, uh, there, uh, some countries had uh, either done it or were experimenting with it. Some states in the US, California, New York and Ireland... Um, were uh, thinking about it or had actually undertaken it. And I was rather keen that the UK should also be in the forefront and should do this. So I got into... Uh, so I managed to persuade Blair to, um, to uh, be interested in the idea. Um, the was quite an achievement because Tony Blair is not a, he's not a... He wasn't a banner. He didn't like banning things or restricting things. Uh, and he was... Um, and, uh, uh, and so his instincts were against the idea, or against the idea of a nanny state, um, if you like. And so I was quite pleased about that. And then I went across, walked across the road, across Whitehall from Number 10 to the Department of Health, and put the idea to uh, John Reed, the, um, the Secretary of State for Health. Now, John uh, himself had been a 50-a-day smoker, um, uh, and uh, his mother had been a 50-a-day smoker, and um, rumour has it, and then, uh, this may story may well be apocryphal, but that uh, he said on his deathbed, on her, sorry, when she said on her deathbed, um, for God's sake, John, don't let them ban smoking. Uh, so um, he was deeply opposed to the idea of restrictions on smoking. In fact, he was on public record of making the, the, um, the perfectly legitimate point that um, uh, the poor have few pleasures in the world. Smoking is one of them. Um, and we should not be in the business of trying to restrict the pleasures of the less well-off and the disadvantaged. Um, and then he said, look, um, he pointed straight at me and said, look, um, you were invited in to work on choice, choice of hospital, choice of education, freedom of choice, uh, and so on. Um, uh, how can you um, honestly stand up and talk about restricting people's choices, restricting people's freedom in this way? Um, why not, for example, he said, why not have a room in every pub and every restaurant into which smokers could go 
Um, and so they could take their drink, they could take their f- food in a restaurant. No bar staff would go in, or no uh, uh, waiters or whatever would go in. Uh, there was ev- some evidence on passive smoking. The evidence on passive smoking was not that good, uh, but it was very strong for the case of bar staff. It's clear that bar staff do suffer from uh, passive smoking. Uh, so uh, what would be wrong with that? And so then they'd be perfectly free to smoke themselves to their heart's content, or their heart's discontent, actually. Um, but why not? Um, and I must say, uh, I didn't have a good answer to that. Uh, and have thought about that, and really have thought about that for the last 10 years, have basically tried to find an answer to that question. Uh, and this essentially is the, uh, uh, is the attempt to provide the answer. Um, so the basic question I want to ask and try and answer is, should the state save people from themselves? Um, if individuals do engage in behaviour that hurts no one but themselves, well-informed, rational, sensible individuals, um, does the state have the right to intervene in any way? Um, and uh, if so, how? How should it intervene? What way should it try and, and operate? And that's essentially what I'm going to be talking about over the next um, uh, few minutes. Um, now, the notion that people do engage in health damaging be- or in damaging behaviour of one kind or another uh, is, of course, uh, widespread. And just to, I mean, you will be familiar with this, but obviously smoking uh, has uh, great problems with heart disease, cancer, and uh, cerebrovascular diseases, alcohol, chronic liver diseases, cirrhosis, accidents, um, and, of course, impacts on third parties through violence and obesity, uh, people eating too much. Uh, the quantity too high, and then the quality of food too, the type of diet, too much fat um, or too much salt or whatever, contributing to various illnesses, uh, illegal drugs, creating accidents, suicide and pneumonia. So uh, there's been actually some attempts to try to actually work out how much of ill health is due to any particular um, particular kind of behaviour and this is a kind of, I think to be fair it's a fairly back of an envelope calculation it wasn't, wasn't done by me um, I think even the authors would, would think it was, um, but nonetheless I mean, what it, it gives you a, a reasonable impression, if you look at um, uh, uh, so they think that of premature mortality, there's a premature mortality in the United States uh, of people dying, male and female dying before the age of 75 um, and you've got a figure here of genetic, about 30%, social 15%, environment 5%, healthcare 10%. Uh, that's an interesting one. That's mistakes in healthcare, 10, 10% of premature mortality. Uh, and uh, behaviour, 40%. Um, now, this is uh, uh, the categories I think you have to take with little care here. I mean, social, for example, how much of the uh, social actually determines the behaviour. If a child is brought up in a poor environment and has very little capacity for exercise, opportunities for exercise, or uh, is brought up with unhealthy eating habits or whatever, uh, is that a social factor or is that a behavioural factor? Uh, so you have to be a little careful, I think, about these exact numbers. But, but it's probably, uh, as a kind of ballpark figure, the notion that, that getting on for half of our, uh, of our uh, ill health or premature mortality can be attributed to behaviour in some way um, uh, is, a, 
is clearly an issue. Um, I mean, if you look, and there are other areas too, of course, if I can just return to this for the moment, um, there's uh, seatbelts, child paternalism, um, respect to seatbelts, we do it with respect to motorcycle, motorcycle helmets, there's health, of course, and there, and so on, illegal drugs, marijuana, I think that's supposed to be marijuana, I'm never quite sure what that cross, what the cross is supposed to symbolise, um, but... Um, uh, <coughs> But there are a whole range of areas where we have policies that, of whom a principal justification has to be some kind of paternalistic justification, some kind of saving people from themselves, from seatbelts, motorcycle helmets, uh, <coughs> um, uh, illegal drugs, uh, and, um, uh, and all the various uh, restrictions on uh, healthy activities. So um, paternalism... In practice, it's actually very widespread. Now, let me say rapidly that not every... Uh, the, the, the sole justification of these policies is often not just paternalistic. But we go through in the book in some detail, we look at, uh, at uh, whether we can really say that the, the non-paternalistic justifications are sufficient to merit the policies, and on the whole we come to the conclusion that uh, there's, always, there's usually a, uh, a healthy or indeed unhealthy dose of paternalism in these policies. Um, however, perhaps for that reason, perhaps because there is already a substantial degree of government paternalism going on in our activities, there is considerable opposition to it. And anybody who's been at all involved in public health or whatever will be aware of this um, when you tend to get um, invitations such as this. This is a, uh, an invitation I received while I was still working at number 10 um, to a champagne barbecue. Um, you may not be able to see uh, all of it, but it says smokers are welcome. Uh, the nanny state is definitely not welcome. Free CD, you can't, you can't do that. Uh, it's produced by Forrest, which is a pro-smoking uh, group. And the warning, the big government is watching you eat, drink, smoke, or even think. And that's reinforced by uh, the, what was on the other side of the card, which was this particular measure, don't eat, don't drink, don't smoke, and it implies you don't think. Um, and uh, there clearly is, in some sense, uh, uh, a strong belief in parts of British society, and in parts of every society, that uh, there is a nanny state, that nanny state is already too invasive, um, and uh, it must be restricted uh, at all costs, and indeed maybe even rolled back. Um, and it's not just, in some sense, cranks who think that. I mean, it stems really from one of my intellectual heroes, um, which is this man, um, John Stuart Mill, uh, who wrote in his, uh, uh, in his famous book on liberty um, about the harm principle. Um, and the harm principle was this, that the only purpose for which power may be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilised community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not sufficient warrant. Uh, and put that way, it has a sort of fundamental plausibility. I mean, it's the John Reed point um, uh, written in uh, a more general uh, and probably more articulate uh, fashion. Um, so the question is, is in some sense John Reed and uh, John Stuart Mill wrong? That it, there is sufficient warrant 
to justify a nanny state or to justify a degree of paternalism um, involved. Um, well, um, we argue in the book uh, that there is, um, and we go through some of the possible justifications you might have for paternalistic policies um, to see what, what legitimacy, in some sense, they have. Um, the first one is, of course, not really paternalistic policies. It's when it hurts third parties. Now, John Stuart Mill will be quite happy with this, policies that if they do hurt a third party. But you do hear them a lot in these kind of debates, um, passive smoking being the classic uh, the classic one, of course, and, and the passive smoking argument was used a lot, even though, as I say, I think the evidence was pretty weak on passive smoking, it was used to justify the banning of smoking in public places, which incidentally, eventually we did get, of course, as people will know, about two years later, after I'd gone from number 10 and John Reed had gone from the Ministry of Health. Um, <coughs> Another argument often put, though, is the cost of government, that there are th- that even in areas where there's nothing like pa- passive smoking or whatever, or when there's no obvious direct impact, there's a kind of indirect impact on people, uh, on third parties, which is the cost to government, the cost to the National Health Service um, of this kind of care, this kind of, uh, the care involved from resulting from health-damaging behaviour. I'd be interested to know what people think of that argument, um, and we in the we have some time for Q and A. We can perhaps see what it is, but I don't think I find it very convincing. I think both on uh, pragmatic grounds, um, both on principle grounds, on pragmatic grounds, on, on the principle issue. I'd, I think the fact that we've decided to uh, fund healthcare collectively doesn't really give us the right to tell people what to do. Uh, in order to minimise our costs. I mean, I ski. I ski occasionally in Scotland and elsewhere. Um, actually, recently, not so long ago, I was skiing in France, and I, I, I uh, broke something and uh, cost the French Health Service a little amount of money, and ultimately probably the British Health Service, because the bill was sent, was, was sent here. Um, now, skiing is a dangerous occupation. Now, should I be restrained from doing this in future? Should I be told not, not, to, do, not, to, not to ski? Um, and more generally, of course, should I be told or should I be told not to go out in the rain because I might get a cold or I might get pneumonia and need health care? I think it's a, it, it, it just, I think there really is a kind of slippery slope here that it's, that's quite dangerous. Um, there's also a more pragmatic reason, though, which is that it might send you in the wrong direction. Um, uh, smoking is a classic example. Smoking tends to kill people after the age of 65, and it smells often kills people quite quickly. Um, so actually, it doesn't really cost the NHS very much. And in fact, there's an interesting Dutch study that shows that on the whole, that healthy people cost, uh, over their lifetimes, cost the, um, uh, the health service rather more than unhealthy people do. Uh, so on that argument, we would actually argue in favour of smoking uh, if we were really going to buy that argument. So I'm not very persuaded by that kind of argument. A third, another argument is autonomy failure, and comes, uh, the other three arguments, which I think are more legitimate, are ends failure and reasoning failure. And let me explain a bit what I mean by that. Um, autonomy failure. Well, this says, look, uh, the real problem with the nanny state, the real problem with, with uh, paternalism is that you're invading people's autonomy. You're taking fully autonomous adults and you're telling them what to do. And you really don't have the right to do that. And if you do do that, you're infantilising them, you're treating them like children, 
Um, and that's, uh, that's not an acceptable thing to do in a kind of liberal society. Um, uh, and um, <coughs> the argument here is, oh, well, actually, is that true? Is it true that the people we're trying to affect are really autonomous? Are they really autonomous? And there are clearly categories of people whom some people would argue are not autonomous, children being the obvious case, and of course paternalism uh, has an echo of parentalism, uh, where we do uh, decide on behalf of other beings, um, such as children, that, uh, that we will intervene and uh, save them from their damaging health or their self-damaging decisions. People with learning difficulties, some people would argue, are not really fully autonomous individuals, people with some forms of mental illness, addiction. Um, some people, I mean, addiction is a, is, a, is a contested notion, but some people might argue that addiction, that addicts, excuse me, and some people do argue that addicts is not, um, uh, is autonomous. Uh, sorry, uh, addiction does get in the way of people's autonomy and that addicts are not fully autonomous individuals. Um, I think, again, I don't find this argument very convincing. I mean, I think that clearly in the case of very small children, that, 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 that is a case for saying they are not autonomous individuals, but, but we are now increasingly moving to a period of, sort of, of children getting being considered as closer to autonomy or with greater autonomy the older they get. We're now proposing uh, voting at 16, for example. Um, so, and children's rights is a, is a well-developed literature, a well-developed concept on that. People with learning difficulties, the same. Um, interesting developments of keeping people with learning difficulties their own budget um, to, uh, to coordinate their own care. Uh, again, um, clearly, clearly regarding these individuals as autonomous uh, individuals, mental illness, the same. Sort of, and, and addicts, as I say, um, again, um, I think many people would argue that, you know, I mean, addicts are not people who are fully non-autonomous. But of course there's an element of autonomy. So again, I don't think the, the how much autonomy failure really justifies paternalism. I think it's quite difficult to get very far trying to justify interfering in people's lives on the grounds that they're non-autonomous. And of course, whole areas such as seat belts, motorcycle helmets, uh, and so on, I mean, it'd be hard to argue that, that the people who uh, uh, operate uh, in those areas uh, are really suffering from any of these problems. Well, I suppose some people might argue for motorcycles, but, uh, uh, but maybe not. Um, so, um, uh, I think there are two sort of more plausible justifications. And here I think it's useful to separate out what we mean by people's ends and people's means, a distinction between ends and means. Everybody has a set of ends, a set of aims, a set of things they want to achieve with their lives. It could be a set of values, a set of principles, um, something it could be quite simple uh, well, or, or quite broad, like they want to lead a happy life um, uh, or they want to lead a healthy life. Uh, it could be more specific, like they want to give up smoking, um, e.g. Uh, um, but they also, have, and they also have a set of means for trying to achieve those ends. They have a set of ways and behaviours that they undertake for achieving those ends. Now, what you could say, for, in terms of justification of state intervention, is you say, well, the state, the state can intervene if it disapproves of people's ends, it decides that what people really want to do is actually is not acceptable. 
It's just not acceptable. And they must be stopped from doing that. Um, and or it could intervene about means. It could say, okay, well, we'll accept people's means. We'll set, we'll set people's ends. Um, however, we think that people might make mistakes in their means, mistakes on their ways of getting there um, through, the, uh, through um, their activities. Um, and uh, I think this is a, quite a useful distinction to make. I mean, actually, the distinction between ends and means is not quite as, as simple as I've, I've made it appear, and it, is quite be, it can be quite complex. But nonetheless, there seems to be a kernel there that the... One argument for paternalism could be the state disapproves of the ends that individuals themselves have voluntarily chosen. Um, um, now, uh, examples of this, and where which various states, various governments do engage is, they outlaw suicide, um, they outlaw homosexual practices or other kinds of sexual practices, or whatever you can send out out some religious, there are various religious observances that people undertake, um, in burqas, very whole range of areas where the, the, um, somebody undertakes an activity with a particular end in mind, the government doesn't like the end in mind, doesn't, uh, and steps in to try to uh, prevent it. Do these kinds of, this kind of paternalism... Uh, is, is it in some sense justified? Is there some way we could justify it? Uh, well, we argue in the book quite strongly that it, that it can't be. That in, certainly in a liberal society, it's very difficult to imagine why we would actually, well, that we would try and ban people's ends or we try to restrict people from achieving their ends. Assuming those ends don't hurt anybody else. Again, that's an important part. That's the whole part of the... Uh, we, we accept the harm principle in that, in that sense. Assuming they don't hurt anybody else. But really, a liberal society is not really in the business about judging that ends that somebody has failed in their ends. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, how could you decide whether somebody had failed in their ends? I mean, what does it mean? Empirically failed? I mean, um, failed against your values, but your values may not be the same as, as the person concerned values. It's very difficult to see that, certainly in a kind of liberal society of the kind that I think many of us would like to live in, that there's really a justification for paternalism on those grounds. Um, um, on the other hand, if you think about means, if you think about the ways in which people try and achieve their ends, you probably can make a much more plausible case for there being a degree of what we call here reasoning failure. Now, this, of course, has been fueled a lot recently by um, uh, a lot of the debates and discussions that have been going on around the air of, uh, around the, uh, under the label of behavioral economics. Um, now, behavioral economics, as, as many of you will know, and indeed there are many distinguished contributors at, to behavioral economics uh, at the LSE, um, including in our department. Um, but they, it, it's, it's when economists have essentially realised what much of the rest of the world knew a long time before, that on the whole people don't behave, always behave entirely rationally. Um, and uh, I remember talking to a psychologist about this once uh, several years ago. He was always outra- he was outraged at the way he said economists nor- uh, ignored psychology. Uh, and then when they finally recognised psychology, they didn't call it behavioural psychology, they called it behavioural bloody economics. Uh, um, so, uh, and they have a whole range of things, a range of, of 
a, par- a behaviour that is in some sense inconsistent with a quote rational unquote with a with a with a systematic way of doing things. Uh, this in these inconsistencies come up. Um, and we've sort of grouped them together in the book in, into four different kinds. I mean, the, the firstly, uh, they arise partly because of four, four limitations. Um, one would be uh, limitations of technical ability. That's the, um, uh, the failure to actually... You're, you're, you've got all the information, you're given all the information, but it's very difficult to process it. It's very. It, maybe you don't understand it. Maybe it's not quite in the right form for you to understand. Or more commonly, maybe there's just simply too much of it. In Switzerland, um, uh, the last they have a sort of semi-private healthcare system, uh, and uh, you have to choose every year for your um, your health plan, um, um, and uh, <coughs> uh, and you have something a choice of ninety health plans. Now, a health plan is a very complicated business, and actually trying to seriously choose uh, that uh, is extremely difficult, and you get a kind of decision overload with too many choices. Pensions might be another example. Um, very Pension plans are actually quite difficult, can be quite complicated to work out. And actually, trying to make those choices, um, even, if you've, even if you had infinite time, you could do it, but um, they're, they're too difficult to do. So... Limited technical ability. Um, um, limited willpower, what Aristotle called a crazier. Um, uh, well, we're all familiar with this one. We're all familiar with the, the, uh, uh, the essay that has to be put in in a week's time and we leave it till the last possible mo- the moment. Uh, the book that has to be submitted by a publisher's deadline um, and gets in, I think, approximately eight years later after the deadline. Um, the, uh, the procrastination is such a... Well, I'm looking at my publisher in the front here, that's why. Uh, um, the purpose of that particular illusion. Um, and um, uh, we are all familiar with the phenomenon of procrastination, by which you just... Uh, you, just you have the fullest intention, you, you, know you, want, you know what you want to do, precisely what you know, you know how to do it, you're perfectly capable of processing the information, and yet it just doesn't happen. Um, uh, uh, um, limited objectivity. This is the the inability to look at the objective facts surrounding your particular situation or particular case uh, and assess it in some sense objectively. Again, a classic example would be smoking. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence suggests that most smokers do actually know the risks of smoking on average, but they also know that they're below the average. Their risk, their risk is below the average, um, which of course is technically impossible for every, everyone to be below the average. Um, but it's quite, again, it's quite a common phenomenon that you may objectively know the indicators concerned and the rest of it, but um, you, there's no real. Uh, it's very difficult to actually work out. Uh, sorry, to strip the activity of your own subjective. Uh, judgments about what's going on. Um, and um, this, I think, is perhaps even the most important of all. And it's limited imagination or experience. And some of the phenomena that the behavioural economists have found, so-called status quo bias, in which you automatically prefer 
the, uh, the status quo over alternative um, so-called hyperbolic discounting. This is when you discount the future, the, what's going to happen in the future, but you do so in an inconsistent fashion, um, with depending on how far away the event is or not. Um, uh, but fundamentally, I think it's a question of what, what I call here myopia. Uh, and this seems to be... Uh, this problem... Uh, seems to be perhaps the most acute of all the kind of what we call the reasoning failures. Um, and this is the problem that uh, if it is very difficult to put yourself in somebody else's place, and in particular, it's very difficult to imagine what you would be like in a different situation, and particularly if that different situation is a long way away uh, in time. Um, again, another of my heroes put this, uh, David Hume, um, uh, put this quite well when he said that there's no quality in human nature which causes more fatal errors in our conduct than that which leads us to prefer whatever is present to the distant to remote. The 18-year-old who picks up a cigarette cannot imagine what it's like to be 65 years old and suffering from lung cancer. Very difficult to imagine what it's like to be 65 years old at all, let alone in that kind of uh, situation. Um, Similarly, about saving for a pension. At 20 years old, there's a very famous, um, uh, for those of us of, of extreme antiquity, there was a very famous advertisement during the 1950s um, about um, five age viewpoints on a pension, um, where the young man, it's the same man all through, um, but the young man says, they tell me the job's not pensionable. Well, don't care. Um, and then at 30, um, there's no pension there. That's ah, not really a problem. At the age of 40, it's, it's, I'm getting a little anxious about this. There doesn't seem to be a pension associated with the job. And at the age of 50, without a pension, I don't know what I will do. Um, and a classic example of the inability, the difficulty to actually put yourself in the situation. And the trouble is, of course, at the age of 50, if you start saving for a pension at the age of 50, you will not save enough. If your end is to achieve, if your end is to achieve uh, a decent standard of living when, you're, uh, when you've retired, then actually saving at the age of 50 or, the age of, or later uh, will not be sufficient to engage you to do that. Um, and I think in almost all the cases of paternalism, or the, 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 the major interventions of paternalism, you often have cases uh, of myopia. Reasoning, what we call reasoning failure, um, a limited ability to put yourself in the place of either somebody else entirely, or more importantly, somebody, your own self, but in the future. Uh, and in that case, it does seem to me that there is a case for actually uh, intervention. Um, so that's the, that's the sort of fundamentals of the argument, that um, uh, probably the, 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 if you hurt third parties, um, well, there are a number of rather dubious arguments around there that, that, that often pulled around under the label of paternalism but aren't really paternalistic and probably don't hold water very well anyway. Um, there's the argument about autonomy failure. Well, saying most people are not autonomous and therefore you're not really infantilizing them. You're not really invading their behavior or whatever. Um, and um, uh, again, I don't, not an argument necessarily find convincing, even with respect to the categories that people put up. And certainly there do seem to be large numbers of people who don't fall into any of those categories, even if you buy those. 
ends failure, where the state says, okay, um, um, you, we, uh, we're going to intervene to stop you achieving those ends because we, i.e. the people who run the state, don't like those ends. Again, probably not acceptable, at least in a liberal society, as, as a way forward. Um, on the other hand, reasoning failure, that's a failure when people fail to achieve those ends, when people fail for a number of reasons, where it's limited technical ability, limited objectivity, um, limited willpower, or most importantly, limited imagination or limited experience, the inability to actually get, uh, then I think we do have clearly a case for, for the state uh, to intervene. Um, now, however, we would like to have... Um, uh, we. Uh, we can't really stop the argument there. There are a number of points, and I'm not going to have to be able to go through them all, actually, I don't think, about whether we might say that the state should intervene because individuals fail. Um, however, there is a, still raised another question. Uh, can the state intervene, or can the state make things better? Won't the state actually make things worse? And indeed, some of that's part of the nanny state argument, or the people who object to the nanny state. They say, well, actually, the state um, would make this. We accept, all right, there is a case for state intervention, but the state actually may well make things worse. Um, so um, uh, we do need to think about, well, how can the state intervene? And I think we also have to accept that there will be some intervention in people's autonomy. There will be some... It is very difficult to conceive of a form of intervention designed with the best possible intention to raise people's well-being, but that does not actually uh, interfere, at least to some extent, in people's autonomy. And really, I suppose, what we're after is actually a kind of intervention that does raise well-being, that's effective at raising individual well-being, but does so without, uh, inter without um, uh, intervening too much in people's autonomy. Well, what are the various ways you can do it? Well, a classic one, of course, is the provision of information. Um, maybe you provide the information uh, in a way, maybe if the problem is too much information, you provide the information in a more uh, helpful way, a way that uh, actually in some way uh, does actually uh, assist people to, um, to be aware of the consequences of their behaviour and to change their behaviour accordingly. Um, I don't know whether any public health physicians in the audience, I tend to call this the leaflet school of public health, um, they, the one, they believe basically that you, you hand out leaflets to people and it solves the problem. Um, uh, I, I caricature, but um, it has to be said there's not a great deal of evidence, at least in the health field, that health education works. Um, there are one or two well-publicised examples of interventions. In Finland, there was a, a, a very resource-intensive intervention to try and to actually stopping people in the streets and trying to um, get them to change their behaviour with respect to heart disease. But um, on the whole, there isn't a great deal of evidence that actually uh, the provision of information uh, really works as a device for... Uh, this is what actually most governments like to do. They like to go further with the provision of information. Most types of intervention actually usually involve some form of restriction, some sort of banning or regulation. And, of course, the classic examples are um, seatbelts, uh, motorcycle helmets, banning smoking in public places, and getting on to a more extreme end, prohibition of alcohol in the United States, 
uh, and um, the war on drugs, the so-called war on drugs and so on. Now, um, uh, these, these can work. I mean, clearly seatbelts, uh, motorcycle helmets, I mean, these, 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 these do work and they do seem to raise individual well-being. They're, I think there's a classic case in the United States where two states have, have removed the motorcycle helmets uh, restriction and uh, uh, serious casualties went up um, by a considerable amount um, with mostly damages to the head from motorcycle accidents. Um, and um, banning smoking in public places, again, that's another one. Where it's very interesting, banning smoking in public places, actually. It's really, it appears to be largely self-enforcing in most of the countries that, that work. It hasn't, doesn't, hasn't cost a great deal to enforce. It appears that um, there's, there's peer pressure not to do it. Uh, and, but people themselves feel um, uh, that they, they will uh, go along with it. And I think it's an interesting example of how people are aware, in a sense, that they're making a mistake in smoking. Many people are aware they're making a mistake in smoking. And actually, the business of putting little hurdles in the way or putting some objections in the way uh, actually goes with the grain of what they want to do anyway. Uh, and so they don't feel inclined to flout the law uh, in terms of um, banning smoking in public places. Um, now, that, of course, is unlike the other two examples I've got here, where, um, as we know, um, there's a lot of... Um, uh, we know that the failure of prohibition in the United States um, um, with massive enforcement costs of one kind or another, a lack of enforcement costs and enforcement costs, and, of course, the war on drugs, which, again, certainly I would argue, and I think many people would argue, has been a, a complete failure, or a very largely complete failure, um, and, uh, uh, and has been an extremely expensive failure at that. Um, and in both of these cases, it's interesting, you really have seriously interfered in people's autonomy, um, and you interfered in people's autonomy against their will, and that is in some sense why they have fundamentally failed. Um, and I think it's a real lesson in terms of, um, of people, uh, of these kind of events, is that, that if, you, if you're going to interfere in somebody's autonomy in a serious way through banning and restriction, um, then, or banning or regulation, only, you can only really do it in cases where you're, you're going with the grain of what people want to do anyway. What smokers wanted to give up smoking, many smokers, 70% of smokers want to give up smoking, most of the evidence is, and so they go along with the banning smoking in public places. People did not want to give up drinking in the United States. Many people in this country, in the United States and elsewhere, do not want to give up smoking uh, illegal drugs or taking illegal drugs of one kind or another. Uh, and, uh, uh, and as a result, the policy tends to fail. Um, um, at the other extreme of... Um, uh, the leaflet school of public health uh, is what I call the provisional wing of the public health um, uh, community. The, um, uh, the believers in basically that it's all the fault of capitalism at the end of the day. Um, it's the fast food industry making us eat too much. It's the, smoke, it's the smoking tobacco industry making us smoke too much. Um, and that really there's probably nothing we can do about that without getting rid of capitalism in some fundamental revolution uh, of some kind or another. Um, um, uh, I think this is probably, I, that seems to be probably a, a too drastic a solution uh, to the problem that I'm talking about, um, and hence it's not a line that uh, we endorse uh, in the book. Um, although there's clearly, I mean, 
clearly, in a sense, there's something to it. I mean, it is true that the fast food industry does actually um, encourage one to, uh, to overeat and to eat the wrong kind of food. It is clearly true that the tobacco industry encourages one to... Um, uh, to engage in smoking, uh, sorry, engage in, yes, to engage in smoking of various kinds. Um, we might talk about, about that, and there obviously are things you can do short of revolution to try to control the behaviour of these firms, um, but that's not what I would call a directly paternalistic intervention. Now, I think the more promising kinds of paternalistic intervention are, are these. One is tax, and of course we do do this with cigarettes, um, alcohol, we, gambling, we engage in so-called sin taxes, taxes on sin, taxes on self-damaging behaviour, um, and um, and on the, and they they do it does tend to work. Most of the evidence is that actually, if you raise the tax on cigarettes, uh, what the, the price elasticity of demand is such that. Um, people do tend to reduce their smoking, similar with alcohol. And, if you, and also, if you lower the price of these things, actually you do increase the demand for them in true, straightforward um, economics fashion. I suppose the chief argument against tax, uh, another advantage of tax too, is that unlike the restriction and banning and so on, another advantage of it is that it doesn't, it doesn't close off people's autonomy. People's autonomy, with the restriction case, they, it's, it's officially closed off. They, completely, they, can, they cannot undertake the activity. With tax, it clearly in some sense restricts people's autonomy because it actually reduces um, their disposable income. Um, but it doesn't actually close it off. If you still want to practice cigarettes, you can go and get your cigarettes. Um, and so it's not interfering in people's autonomy to that sort of fundamental extent. Um, I suppose the chief argument against tax... Um, is that uh, is uh, for many of the activities concerned? Is it regressive nature? Um, it does tend to. Uh, it is on the whole. It's the less well-off who smoke most, the less well-off who eat uh, uh, most unhealthily, less well-off who gamble. Um, uh, and hence, if we introduced heavy taxation, uh, we do cause. We might cause regressive problems. Problems of regressiveness. Um, and in turn, of course, that might create further problems because if, we, if, if the poor, say, carry on smoking, despite a heavy tax, they might cut down on the amount they eat, uh, which again would create health problems and so on. So you might then go the other extreme and talk about subsidy. Now, we do subsidise activities um, for paternalistic reasons. The most classic case is subsidy to the arts, uh, which it's hard to argue, or public service broadcasting. It's hard to argue there's very much a reason for that, other than some kind of paternalistic reason uh, in terms of um, uh, trying to uh, uh, encourage people to consume something they think is good for them. I suspect it's probably an ends failure, paternalism. That's to say we don't like, we think people ought to have superior educated ends in some form or another, and so we try to encourage people to uh, go... Um, there's also been quite a lot of work recently trying to look at subsidies to do, address things like smoking and eating, uh, eating healthily, subsidies to healthy food, um, subsidies to gym, gym membership and so on. Um, the evidence, I think, on the whole is that, that, that it can work. It can work. Um, uh, and, uh, but, uh, but probably only in the kind of short term, um, in the short run. It doesn't appear to lead to permanent changes in behaviour when the subsidy is reduced people return to their uh, their old habits um, 
It's also quite difficult politically. I, I mean, I did. Uh, I talked about this once uh, when I was uh, in government. I got rung up by a, by a, a reporter on the Daily Express um, uh, who said, uh, he said, who asked me what the policy was, and he said, "Are you trying to tell me that I shall tell my readers that that?" Uh, they should pay good money to get Joe Blog, fat Joe Bloggs, sitting on the, sitting down the road, off his arse and away from the run television and jogging up and down. Uh, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, inconceivable that I could persuade my readers that to engage in this bribery to bribe somebody to do something they ought to be doing for themselves anyway. And um, so, politically not easy. And there's something again, there's something to the argument. And of course, there's a slight danger too that people will the incentive effects that people will take up the, uh, the activity um, uh, in order to receive the subsidy uh, to stop it. Um, so probably that's not, that's probably not going to be... A, I certainly, if faced with a choice between subsidising healthy activities or taxing unhealthy activities, I would go for the taxing unhealthy activities as the way forward. Uh, of course, it has the additional advantage, it raises revenue for the government, uh, whereas the subsidy costs the government money. Um, and then, and I will finish on this, um, uh, there are, of course, there are ideas that arise from behavioural economics, so-called nudge ideas, uh, libertarian paternalism. This is when you change the context in which people make choices, so as to nudge people in the right direction. Now, you're still being paternalist, you've still got a view about what they should do, but instead of compelling them to do it, or instead of taxing them if they don't do it, or subsidising to do them, you, you, offer, you, you change the environment in which they make the decision. Now, the classic cases where we've done that in pensions, of course, in the UK, we moved following um, a report that John Hills was very largely um, uh, involved in, uh, we've moved from um, a system uh, where we, well, we do, we still, um, there's an element of compulsion in selling pensions, there's an element of subsidy, we do offer tax relief of various kinds to, uh, to pensions, um, but we've also introduced a system of auto-enrolment, by which people are automatically enrolled in a pension, and uh, they can opt out, um, but if they don't opt out, they just automatically stay in. And there's quite a lot of, there's a lot of evidence, I mean, it's the classic example, that actually this is rather an effective strategy. Uh, there have been studies in the United States that shows that, or that if you have a system where you have to opt into a pension scheme, uh, I don't, the, um, the, the, these are very ballpark figures, but about 80% of people will not opt in, 20% will opt in. Um, if you have a system where you're automatically enrolled in the pension scheme and you, and you have to opt out, then, although, uh, then it's still 80-20, but it's 80-20 in the opposite direction, with 80% staying in and 20% staying out, or go on moving out. Um, and the great advantage of this, of course, is, is with respect to autonomy. You're, you're not actually um, infringing on people's autonomy because the choices are exactly the same in both cases. Um, so it's, uh, in many ways, particularly for those who are worried about nanny state or whatever, it is an attractive way to go, because it looks as though you can raise people's well-being, you can get very dramatic changes in behaviour. I mean, some dramatic changes in, in terms of things like um, uh, pensions. Another example, incidentally, is organ donation. You have in-out, opt-in or opt-out systems of organ donation, again, leading to dramatic changes in the amount of uh, organs available for donation. Um, 
So you, you can need a dramatic change in behaviour. It doesn't cost the, the policy itself doesn't cost the government anything to implement. They don't have to pay out money on subsidies, or uh, and it seems to preserve people's autonomy. Um, now, not everybody buys that. Um, some people say, "Well, does it really not impinge on people's autonomy?" I mean, isn't there a certain amount of trickery going on here? I mean, you're you're you're, you're not trying to cure. You're, you accept the people engage in reasoning failure. They do make mistakes, and you're exploiting that in some way. You're exploiting their their, their ability to make mistakes. Um, you're not trying to correct the reasoning failure. You're not trying to educate them, or in some sense, correct their reasoning failures. They're exploiting them. So isn't there some sort of undermining of people's autonomy uh, going on? And I, I think there may be something to that. that clearly, certainly, I mean, I feel... Um, uh, and, of course, the argument is that if you actually explain to people what they were doing, what you were doing, wouldn't that negate the effect? Wouldn't people actually... Uh, change their behaviour. Now, actually, it's an interesting words. I think by Paul by Paul Dolan here, at the um, uh, which suggests and, and various other behavioural economists in the United States that suggest that actually, even when you tell people what you're doing, you don't actually necessarily change their behaviour. They still, um, they still the 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 nudge policy still works. Um, but I but. Nonetheless, I still think it's something. I mean, I get. I mean, presumably, we, we probably all had this experience of uh, of uh, uh, flying Ryanair, um, and you don't want travel insurance when you're when you're on the ticket, and uh, you get to the end of your and you discover that somewhere you've got travel insurance, and a box was ticked that you didn't untick. Uh, and it turns out that the do, the do not include travel insurance is in the list of of countries. That you're going to or not going to, um, for no very obvious reason. Um, and there's no doubt it drives me bonkers, when, uh, or apoplectic actually. I think when 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 I come across it, um, and it does make me very unsympathetic to Ryanair and whatever. And incidentally, in parentheses, it is worth noting that of course a lot of these so-called nudge techniques are techniques that the private sector has been using for years um, in various ways. So I think there's something to that, uh, but. Um, it probably does, but um, I think the, the real problem in many ways is that outside of the obvious examples, like auto enrolment, it's very difficult to think of examples uh, where you can actually apply these ideas in uh, the sort of context I've been talking about, like e.g. smoking. Well, this was one of them. This is an idea I had, um, which was for a permit to smoke. Um, the idea here was that... Um, Every year, you'd need to get a permit to buy tobacco. Um, the permit would be a card sort of, uh, with a photograph on it and, uh, and a proof of age. It would have the advantage that you could, you could enforce the business about not selling below uh, age of 18 or whatever. Um, uh, you'd have to renew the card every year. In order to renew the card, you'd have to go down to uh, an office, a post office, situated in a slightly unfriendly part of town. Um, where the, the, the form you fill out will be a little complex. Government's good at that. They, 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 they can devise a nice complex form. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and then you might, in the end, you might pay a small charge of £10 or something just to, to, uh, to do it. Um, um, and um, you have to show, you have to display ID and so on. And then when you wanted to buy tobacco, you'd have to go and you'd have to display this to every... 
everywhere where you try to buy it. Uh, and the idea being, in some sense, it would be kind of, it's almost like a cooling off period. I mean, you make your resolution not to smoke on January the 1st. You couldn't break it on January the 2nd by simply rushing off and buying a package of cigarettes. If you're going to break it, you've got to actually get this form first, and you've got to go through all this. And again, it would sort of provide a kind of just a barrier, and not a very difficult barrier, but nonetheless a hassle barrier to stopping you doing it. Um, um, and um, it does have the... It, so it, this is an opt-in, opt-out system. You, start, you have to opt in every year to being a smoker. Um, and it, it might well stop people starting. I think that's one of the attractive things about the idea is that the thought that people would have to um, go and uh, do this if they wanted to start becoming a serious smoker. Um, of course, you're probably already ticking off in your heads all the problems that might arise with such an idea. Um, and clearly enforcement is an issue. I mean, what's to stop... Uh, you're giving your card to somebody else and or, or something going... Well, of course, the, you would have the photograph would be on it, but it's hard to imagine supermarket che- checking every uh, ID card, but nonetheless. Um, so e- there are practical issues. Um, um, I have said this idea got some publicity, and it's the only time in my life when I've been... Uh, um, when I've been monstered by the tabloids... Um, uh, they had a field day with this one. They, they really liked it. Um, uh, and um, then, uh, then it got picked up in the United States um, by something called the Drudge Report, which is a kind of blog, uh, blog sort of fairly right-wing blog. And uh, my email box exploded, my inbox exploded, uh, mostly with um, pictures. Um, uh, those, those are two of them I got um, I've got a very good collection too of Franco pictures or Mao Zedong um, as well as these um, uh, and uh, I, clearly, um, I clearly hit some sort of nerve and there is a, uh, there's a, a, an Australian colleague of mine who's, uh, who's also put forward a similar idea in Australia and has had a, a very similar experience um, with this time with the, the pictures coming not only from Australia or the United States but also from the UK um, so you do you clearly do you hit a nerve with these these kind of ideas. I, in my naivety, thought it would be quite a good idea because people think, well, you're not banning cigarettes; you're still allowing people people still be able to to have it, um, and the people the, the libertarians would be quite pleased with that. But uh, but no, um, they were not uh, uh, they were not happy with that. Um, so I think that. It is probably the way to go in terms of that if we can think of good ideas, libertarian, paternalist ideas of these kinds, and if uh, any of you have got some bright ideas, do let me know. Um, uh, I think this, this is probably, it does have the advantage of it does restrict people, it doesn't restrict people's autonomy, at least not to the same extent as clearly banning things does. Um, uh, and since I don't really want to help, I don't really want to end up with the uh, finish this with, with pictures of Hitler and Stalin. Um, I think I'd probably prefer to end on this. Um, um, that uh, we don't want Hitler or Stalin um, running our governments. We don't uh, imposing an authoritarian state. We probably don't want a Mary Poppins either. Um, but what we do want, uh, oh, sorry, what we do want is um, a little miss and presumably, probably, hopefully, also a little Mr. A little Mr. Helpful. Uh, and that the government can actually engage in being a helpful friend and not a nanny state. Thank you.
Well, I'm sure there will be some reactions to uh, the propositions that uh, Julian's been advancing. I, I found it a very helpful book in just uh, raising questions that I hadn't thought about before, uh, uh, and I've no doubt many of you will find that when you read it. But let's get some questions, reactions, comments from people in the audience. Uh, and I'll take, I'll see how we go. Yes. Hi, uh, my name's Christine. I'm a master's student in the social policy department. Yeah. Um, one thing I was interested in is you never really touched on, you, touch, you touched on why people don't not smoke. Versus, for example, versus why people do smoke, like the source of the behavior versus the behavior. And I'm thinking, how would that actually, if you switch the focus, how would it change the intervention? For example, why do people smoke? Well, one, there's a physical dependency. Two, it might be stress. Three, it could be lack of education and understanding how it impacts, um, actually, you know, their health later on. And so focusing on that side would actually change the intervention and maybe focus more on, you know, more um, addiction services or education um, in uh, schools for young children and things like that. Yes, I see what you mean. It's definitely a different, a different kind of focus. I suppose I tended not to go down that route because, as you were saying towards the end, the, the, the way it takes you is towards policies that I don't think will work. Um, and the classic example being health education, for example. I mean, I think it is very difficult to, let's say, educate people not to smoke. Uh, not impossible, but, but very difficult and not likely to work, uh, in my judgment, compared with some of these other policies. Um, so I, I suppose I would, I would really, on the whole, pref and I, I suppose to be fair, too, that when I talk about subsidy policies, that is actually trying to encourage people to engage in positive activities and trying to earn it. Um, but as I say, I do have my worries about whether they work either. So on the whole, um, uh, I tend to go for, for, for policies that have put a little bit of barriers in the way of people um, who want to do unhealthy things rather than help those unhealthy. Does that, does that answer your point, or not quite? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Caught some design down there, yeah. yeah um, thanks, thanks very much. Um, it's okay. Uh, if I well, if you, if you have I, a, I think you might have to actually because they are recording. This. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm Patrick Worthington, I'm a social worker, I work in public health, and, and one of the things I'm very struck by is my colleague GPs having to sit now, being paternalistic, you might argue, having difficult conversations with people whose behaviour is, is creating well-modelled downstream costs for all of us. We, we have the, I think we're the most obese country in, in northwestern Europe. The health consequences of that aren't going away. And I, I wouldn't for one minute want to say anything unkind about people on lower incomes who are eating, smoking, drinking, because actually that improves their quality of life. But we have to do something active because, you know, we, we've done dental health um, we, we, we all accepted fluoride in our water with the, with the positive benefits you know, that can be argued with. But it's how we support GPs at the behest of the Departments of Health, which is government, to do their job and have those difficult conversations and take agency ourselves to actually do something about the potential cost for all of us. Because I have to make decisions on what I spend money on 
now, and it's going to get worse going forward unless we do something. Well, yes, uh, you are right that... Um, <clears throat> no, is this working? Well, maybe my... Maybe my this, this is still working. Um, uh, GPs are engaging in activities and have been, and on the whole, have been told to do it. Um, I don't know what your colleagues are like, but um, the GPs I've encountered hate it. Uh, they, they, they hate because, part because they feel they're already in a paternalistic profession, and they feel this is sort of carrying paternalism to sort of the next stage. Um, but it, and there, there is some evidence actually, and I said health education tended not to work. But there is some evidence that GP advice can work. Um, so in some respects, as you're right, it is probably a good thing. But it is interesting you, you, you moved on to saying the argument about, well, people have to take some responsibility for themselves. And, of course, that's very much the argument that you do get the libertarians using. They do say, look, by engaging in this kind of heavy-handed paternalism, um, and so many patients do feel it's heavy-handed, uh, you are actually... Uh, you're, you're, you're implying that in some senses that, um, uh, that people have got to take their own responsibility for themselves um, and uh, they've got to be uh, responsible adults and if you engage in any more kind of paternalism you're going to infantilise them and the rest of it. Um, and it's a difficult one uh, because there's a clearly something to that. Clearly something we would like people to take responsibility for themselves. I think, as I say, I think I just think the best way to do that is to put, going back to your question, I think, is to put barriers in their way. Uh, to, they take responsibility for themselves, but you just make it a little more difficult um, uh, to take the irresponsible route. Yes, and the mic's coming. Uh, Peter Sosu base here at uh, LSE. Um, would you accept that there are some people that seem to exhibit very high discount rates? Uh, in other words, they might choose not to save for a pension um, because they'd rather enjoy themselves more in their 20s than um, care about being well off in their, in their 70s. They, they, they may know that by not saving for a pension they'll be much poorer in their 70s, but they make the choice that, 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 that what happens to them in their 20s is more important than what will happen to them in, the, in their 70s. Presumably, given the sort of terminology that you introduced earlier, um, you would regard that as a failure of um, ends and therefore not a case for paternalistic intervention. Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, the, and of course, that's what seems to be attractive about the libertarian paternalist ideas, e.g. The, um, <clears throat> the idea of um, the auto-enrolment of pensions, for example, is that it doesn't enable people who have really thought about it and really decided they do actually have uh, a very high discount rate um, and they really would prefer they do have the option of doing that they can opt out of the pension scheme and it's the great advantage over having some kind of compulsory saving schemes where they can't do that um, so now of course it has to be said and there is some in the literature there's some slippage on this um, that of course some people who opt out will still nonetheless be making a reasoning failure mistake they, do, they, they actually but nonetheless I think the fact that the opt-out does give them an opportunity to exercise their preferences um, is, is an attractive feature of those schemes. Uh, there, and then at the back. Yeah. 
Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I just personally find the notion of the state being a little mishelpful quite deceiving and that um, sometimes the state trying to be helpful can end up being a central planner by providing these barriers to behaving as you would as a, as an individual then it's then it's becoming coercive and i want to perhaps you could share your opinion on when the state is no longer helpful and it actually becomes coercive in its very existence yes uh it's a very there's a very interesting debate in the um in the literature about whether paternalism necessarily involves coercion um uh, and the argument is uh, that there, I mean, clearly some kinds do. Clearly banning things, restricting things, involves coercion. Um, there is an argument that, that some, it's, it's not so clear that other forms of paternalistic intervention do involve coercion. Subsidising, subsidising the arts, it doesn't look as though you're coercing people. You're, you're persuading people. You're changing their, their, uh, the, the information which they're operating or whatever, but you aren't... You aren't forcing them to do anything. In fact, if anything, you're kind of increasing their range of freedoms by offering them the subsidy. Of course, there is a question of the taxation that pays for that subsidy, which you could argue is coercive, but that's a different uh, kind of argument. And again, the libertarian paternalist argument, I mean, do you think auto-enrolment systems are coercive or not? Um, I think, I suspect your instinct might say, well, it does seem as though having an opt-out system is a little more coercive or a little more, um, a little more paternalistic than having an opt-in system. We have to choose to opt-in. But it's actually quite difficult to articulate why that should be, given that the choices are exactly the same in both cases. So I, I suppose I, I don't accept really the fundamental premise that paternalism necessarily involves coercion. And I certainly, but what I do accept is the notion, I certainly prefer those forms of Paternalism, such as libertarian paternalism, such as taxation versus, um, over, over the, the heavily coercive forms, such as restriction and banning. Do you want to come back? <laughs> okay. okay, do if you want to. No, not particularly, it's fine. Fine? Somebody at the back. Hello, Michael Weber from AgeWatch. We're a public health charity. Um, just wondering, do you think the state has a role, shall we say, in terms of achieving a, a slightly more level playing field? If we take public health as, as an example, um, the companies that produce food that's unhealthy, and you were referring to some of that earlier, have very large advertising budgets. They can employ very sophisticated marketing companies, behavioural economic <laughs> economists and the rest. Uh, and pitted against them is usually a fairly small budget public health uh, with fairly amateurish approaches quite often. Um, and if you look at things like the banking industry, um, you know, uh, capitalism, I'm not saying we should, you know, abolish capitalism, but businesses do sometimes do bad things. And sometimes governments step in to regulate and protect people from the companies who aren't perhaps doing things quite as they should. Do you see a role there? Because otherwise, um, we're expecting people to either rationally or emotionally take decisions when the dice are perhaps loaded against them. Yes. Um, when I was in number 10, I got... Um, uh, we were discussing a particular um, measure, um, particularly traffic, traffic light labelling of food 
red you know, for high sugar and, and salt and fat content and uh, orange. And, and, uh, uh, and I got um, taken out to lunch. Oh, I shouldn't tell people this, but anyway. Got taken out to lunch by, uh, by Cadbury's. Um, uh, and we had a very good lunch, full of salt and fat. Um, and uh, and uh, they desperately tried to persuade me to not to push this particular idea of traffic light labelling food. Um, and I said, well, look, couldn't you, couldn't you, I mean, why can't you cut down the sort of the, the content of fat and sugar in chocolate and the rest of it? And he said, they said, well, chocolate is fat and sugar. <laughs> um, and uh, I could have some sympathy with that. And then they, then they said, um, and you know, the irony about all this is that uh, most of the big chocolate firms, the Cadbury's and the Roundtree's and so on, were set up by Quakers in the 19th century um, as a device to protect against the demon drink. Um, and now we're the ones being demonised. Um, and I had some sympathy with them. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, the general point you make is right. And of course, in some senses, you don't need a paternalistic justification to justify the state, because even on John Stuart Mill lines, you can say, look, there is one group of agents in the, in the economy, in the society, that is inflicting harm upon another group of agents. So that's the tobacco firms or the chocolate firms or whatever are inflicting harm upon a third party. And the state then has a responsibility to step in to try to prevent that. So I would never say that um, my arguments or the arguments here that we've been using... Um, in any sense run against having the state engaging in precisely that kind of protection you're talking about. Um, so, um, so, yes, I mean, I, I, I would like to see the kind of measures I've been talking about in complement with protective measures where the state does protect against the, the more... Can we use the phrase predatory capitalism since the election? Um, but against predatory capitalism. Well, incidentally, we never got traffic light labelling through because it turned out to be a European Union matter. It's a single, uh, it's a single market issue. Another argument for UKIP, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Sebastian Newman. I'm a master's student here at LSE. Um, I read a paper about um, an approach called think-think instead of nudging, um, the idea of um, educating people to make informed decisions, and you touched on that earlier. How would you think, is it even possible to provide people with these informations um, to make informed decisions without being paternalistic? Because when you frame and provide a context, you're kind of selecting information also, aren't you? Yes, well, it's quite interesting. And for those of you who are interested in, in looking at that, there is a book called, I think, 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 Nudge, Nudge, Think, Think, um, obvious allusion to a certain television program. But... Um, uh, and their argument is very much that, that um, uh, the problem with the nudge, the libertarian paternalism ideas, is that they exploit people's reasoning failure. And what we should do, be doing, is actually is educating people, is trying to overcome these reasoning failures by engaging in, in more deliberative mechanisms. Um, 
And um, I, again, it's quite easy to sympathise with that or can see the, 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 uh, the idea there. Um, the problem is, I think, the sheer practicality. I mean, their idea was very much a, a kind of deliberative democracy that people, that you get groups of people to sit down and, um, and try to overcome these various problems like limited imagination, limited objectivity, uh, and so on. Um, and I, I, there were just two things that struck me about it was that I can't see why people engaging in a kind of collective meeting would, none, would still not nonetheless suffer from these sort of problems. You would still get... I, I can't see how somehow the collectivity would mean that they would overcome the problem of limited imagination um, and limited uh, objectivity and so on. Uh, and, uh, and, but also the sheer practicality. I mean, I, couldn't, I can't imagine how we would deal with problems like uh, too much fat and sugar in chocolate. Um, by some deliberative mechanism. So, I mean, on the whole, I, I thought that although I can see the intuitive attractiveness of what they said, I just don't think it's really feasible on practical grounds. Any more comments, reactions? Yes. Uh, Sunil Kumar, also the LSE. Julian, you talked about means and end, and it seemed as if it was one cycle. If you took then the end to become the means for something else, so in relation to the first question about smoking, okay, uh, you're stressed, you take up, you smoke, you relieve your stress, and you get smoke, you get stressed again, and you take something else, or drinking. And how would you then? What would your intervention point be? At which point of the ends, or which point of the means? Because the underlying issue is something else, yeah? uh, and also the means, uh, the kind of uh, the means for for ends could be multiple. It's not just a singular. So, a combination of alcohol and tobacco, right? So the policy interventions can't be in a sense singular when some of these problems are more complex. Well, I think that's right, and I, I did say that I thought the um, the distinction between means and ends is not perhaps quite as simple. Uh, as I was portraying, and that it is quite difficult sometimes to decide what's means and what's, what's an end. Um, and um, I think all I can do is plead that, 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 yes, there will be many situations where it will be quite difficult to distinguish in means and ends, um, and hence quite difficult to decide what the state's appropriate response should be. Um, however, I do think that in many cases it is actually quite simple. For example, I, th- I do think that... Uh, um, there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that 70% of smokers do wish to go out smoking and, and can't, and admit to that, and admit they can't. So they admit that there, there is a problem of means. Basically. They, they know what their end is. It's quite a simple end in this case. It's to go out smoking. Um, and um, similarly with pensions, I mean, I think people would argue that, uh, again, the end... Uh, there are very few people who I think would take the position that the gentleman earlier was mentioning. Uh, they, they really... Uh, they're really resigned to complete poverty in old age, um, starvation in old age. They really would like to have a healthy, uh, they'd like to have a, a healthy and indeed prosperous old age. Um, but, um, but they just can't do it. They can't sort of get there in some ways uh, without some degree of state intervention. But yes, I do think there is a, I, I take your point, I think there is, uh, there's more conceptual work to be done on what is the distinction between means and ends. Good. Well, thank you very much, audience, for some very interesting questions. Uh, Those of you who have persuaded 
been persuaded that you would like to purchase a copy of this book. There's some outside. But for, even if you don't, uh, there, I do encourage you to come up to the sixth floor to the Shaw Library where there is a reception and things to drink and eat. Um, so I'd like to thank Julian very much for a thoughtful evening. Uh, somewhat controversial at, at times, but nevertheless always thoughtful. Thank you very much, Julian.